the Press Box Best of 2019. Joining us on episode 17, Mark Aston. So when you see this, uh, I will uh, I will be in Melbourne, and uh, I'll be in rehab at the Hatter Clinic, which is a, uh, a rehabilitation centre. I'm telling you this because if I'm going to be a genuine advocate for mental health, and a genuine advocate for mental health is someone whose message generally is to destigmatise mental health and addiction, then I have to be totally upfront and as honest as I possibly can be with everyone. I'm going over there for two and a half months. I feel as though uh, I've still got a lot to offer in life, but I'm struggling, really struggling badly with my addictions and I'm finding it impossible to give them up. And I need to look after myself and I've got good friends and I also want to continue to spread the word about mental health. That's really important to me. Uh, Those who know me well, know that the addictions I'm talking about uh, have destroyed my life and and upset a lot of people and it has to stop. uh, I've been doing all of these silly things since I've been 14. Um, I've felt a fraud, to be honest. I've felt worthless and I've felt as though I just haven't been completely honest with myself Um, and that's about to change. This week we have a guest with us whose story stems from the unknown. Mark Aston, former TV sports reader and radio breakfast host, will guide us through the dark alleyways which makes up his journey from the top of the media game to some of life's darkest pits. To open up on the realities of mental health, Mark joins us now on the Press Box. Mark, welcome mate. Hi Sam, how are you boys? All good? I'm fantastic. Very well. well. I want to start by asking you, how are you right now? I'm good. Um, And when I say I'm good... When I was um, when I was in uh, rehab in Melbourne two months ago, we were never allowed to say good. Uh, we had to give another word because good is a bit general. But uh, now I'm back in Adelaide, I don't have to worry about that. Uh, so I guess I, I do feel good. I feel a lot better, uh, a lot more in control. I'm clean and sober, uh, and I haven't had a bet for three months, which is really really important. And uh, and and I'm doing my program every day and making that my absolute priority. I can't say that when I leave here or tomorrow I won't have a drink. I can't say that. But right now, uh, things are a lot better than they were three months ago, that's for sure. That's great. Fantastic to hear. And I know everyone who's listening in right now would really love to hear those words coming from you. You've just returned, as you said, from Melbourne, from yeah. rehabilitation. Uh, how long have you been back for? I've been back for three weeks and I spent two months over in Melbourne at the Hayter Clinic um, and uh, just uh, just prior to that, when I was at my absolute lowest, and I guess to be frank, you know, my life was unmanageable. But no one would have known that except my closest friends and my family. Um, I had a meeting with my sister and uh, and my best friend. We didn't have a meeting. We actually went out for tea, and we all had to be honest with each other. And you know, as part of my honesty, I had to explain to them just where I was at. And, uh, I mean, they weren't horrified because they sort of knew anyway. And then two days later, I was in Melbourne. Um, But in between that, uh, obviously, I had to do some research and find out perhaps, you know, where the best place was. And initially, I thought of going over to Bali, and there's a place over in Bali. So I emailed them and then got a lovely email back from a guy called Jackson Opie, or Jackson Oppie, actually. 
and uh, he ran the one over in um, in Bali, but he also ran the Hayter Clinic. And he emailed me and he said, uh, I'm going to ring you in half an hour. So I was walking Jack, my dog, and he rang me uh, about half an hour later and I spent an hour on the phone with him and he was asking me questions and talking to me and I was, I probably cried 70% of the phone call. Wow. I mean, he knew what to ask. He, 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 at the end of the hour, he understood where I was at and he, he saved my life, I mean, along with my sister and my best mate. Um, and he, 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 was, he, he insisted that I, I'd be on a plane within 24 hours and he said, we've got a spot for you in Geelong because Hayter's got two clinics, one in Geelong and... One in Essendon, Geelong's the uh, the detox centre, and within 24 hours I was on a plane. Uh, he met me at the airport. He drove me all the way down to Geelong, and obviously we're keeping in touch. And um, you know, as I say, he saved my life, or he was one of the three that saved my life. So, um, yeah, in answering your initial question, I've been back for three and a half weeks, three weeks or so, uh, after spending two months in Melbourne. So, Mark, was there a, a tipping point, or was there a tipping point in your life when you went right? This is a something has to be something has to happen here. Yeah, it, look, it's an interesting question. I I guess you would think that the tipping point was when I lost my job at Channel Ten, and then the tipping point I, I might have thought was when I lost my job at Nova, and then maybe another tipping point was when my wife and I split. She couldn't cope anymore. So there were three pretty horrendous things in my life that occurred, but after each of those, I was still using. And and so I wasn't ready for whatever reason. I mean, I know it sounds inconceivable, but you know, as horrible as it was when when um, when I lost my job at Channel Ten, I think I was still really. I think I was still numb. You know, I mean, I was certainly mentally numb, but I think I was just numb from the experience. I sort of knew what had happened and understood that Judith and my family were horrified and everywhere. You know, a lot of friends, and, but. I really don't think, you know, well, clearly it, it didn't strike me as being something that was going to tip me over to, to get some help. Um, so after that happened, I started living by myself for three years and things just started to deteriorate, to, to deteriorate. And I guess what I mean by that is things that you guys might not have seen, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't wearing clean clothes and I wasn't doing my teeth in the morning. I wasn't doing my bed. Um, the house was a mess. I was using all the time. I was still functioning. I was still doing media training and doing it well. Uh, that's the weird thing. I mean, no one would have ever known. But, of course, once I left that media training job or left the gym mm -hmm. or whatever, I was, I was still going to the gym and, and having a sauna. As soon as I got into the car, it was back to being that person, that that unfortunate person, without sounding as though that's a pity party, but that unfortunate person that mm. was in such a bad state. So um, so I guess, it, look, it, it just got to a point where, you know, uh, I was suicidal and I was uh, isolating and um, Kathy, my sister, my beautiful sister and, and Brad, my, my best mate, could see what was going on and they just didn't know what to do. And then, as I say, one day they, they said, look, why don't we have a chat to you? And it actually revolved around money because I, I wasn't able... Because mm -hmm. one of... Uh, an, 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 one of the issues that addicts have is that they, their life becomes unmanageable in all areas, mm -hmm. and that includes money. So I was spending, and I, I wasn't paying the bills, and I was being really irresponsible, and that was a worry to my sister because she was actually looking after my finances. She'd offered to do that, but I was lying to her. You know, I'd say I need $150 for petrol and I'd put 20 in and go to the TAB or or I'd buy drugs or – see what I mean? So she obviously started picking up on that and this, of course, meant that she was being affected. Mm. So her and Brad got together and we had that um, – yeah, we had that uh, that dinner and, um, uh, and then I just sort of really – 
gave into it all and said, okay, let's do what we possibly can. Because at 61 years of age, you know, I, I don't want to waste any more time being, you know, being a mess and being irresponsible and being dishonest and being horrible and, you know, um, you know, I, I want to live a good 20, 25 years uh, at a, a far higher level than I ever have. And to do that, you have to be clean and sober. You've been pretty vocal about your addictions online and talking about them through Facebook. What are some of the battles that you've faced with your addictions? Yeah, so, well, it's alcohol, uh, marijuana, gambling, and probably the last two years, cocaine. Um, uh, but I guess the, the key there is that I started using alcohol and I started gambling and I started using marijuana at the age of 14, and I'm 61 now. Now, I'm not saying that I used it every single day and, I'm not, and I never, ever used it on air. Never. Well, I say it. I, never, I was never stoned on air. Mm. Look, I might, I, there was one night where I, many years ago, when I had had a few drinks at a, in fact, it was after the 1985 Melbourne Cup. And, uh, Who won I, that year? Uh, just a dash. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, I do remember that because, and I, I think that's right, because Bruce McAvaney, it was his first call. Right. It was his yeah, first right. call. And, and I remember watching it at the British and having a few too many coming back. And look, I was fine, but there was a lot of phone calls saying, oh, was Mark okay? Did he celebrate too much? Anyway, that was the only time I ever used yeah. uh, on air. Um, but... Uh, that, so that, that, so they're the, they're the three ch- drugs of choice and the gambling. Mm-hmm. And when you combine all four of them, I mean, thank God I didn't get into ice. Thank God I didn't get into heroin. I mm-hmm. mean, that's a different addiction. Again, that's a physical addiction. Um, mine are all mental addictions. Um, and I'm an addict. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone who can't stop. I just can't stop at one. I can't stop at one bed. I can't stop at one joint. I can't stop at one line of coke. I can't stop at, you know, one glass of red. And when you, when you are a person like that, then you shouldn't be doing any of those things because you just know, and I certainly learnt this over the last seven or eight years, that when you go out and you start drinking, you know it's going to end in tears in some way, shape or form because you know you're going to keep going, you know you're going to black out, and you know you're going to do the wrong thing. You said that you started age 14 with 14, some, of these, yeah. some of these substances. How do you... As such a young person, have those things introduced to you in your life? Well, you know, what, what was it, 58, 68? It was 1972, 73. Yeah. Marijuana was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, my father was a drinker and mum, mum was a drinker. Well, not obviously, but they were drinkers. So alcohol was around. I was 14, 15, you know, still at school. I mean, it, it's not that difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and I was a bit of a – I was a rocker, what you call a rocker. I used to wear the tight jeans and the and the ripple soles, and we used to hang around Parkside, around the Parkside area. We were called the Parkside Rockers. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I'd leave home. I lived at Fullerton. We'd walk down Glen Osmond Road. We'd go into the Arkabar. Well, we wouldn't. We'd have to get someone else to do it for us. Yeah. They'd buy, we all, it was just beer we were drinking in those days. Uh, and then, of course, you know, marijuana was introduced to me. Um, and I can remember now the, the, the very first time I, I smoked marijuana. I didn't get much out of it. Went and saw a movie and I kept saying to the guy who gave it to me, I said, I didn't really get much out of that. Um, but I certainly got something out of it afterwards, uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, so it was around, Sam. You know, that's you know that stuff was around. I mean, luckily I wasn't introduced to heroin because heroin, heroin was around then as well. A mm. couple of my friends were using, both of whom aren't here anymore. Yeah. Mm. Um, and certainly ice not. Uh, and obviously hallucinogenics were around as well. But I never got into them. Um, but one thing I would say is when I started drinking and started using marijuana and gambling, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. If someone had said to me at 17, mate, you can have a problem when you get older mm. or maybe you should think about getting some help now, 
I would just I, I lived for it. Was it a lifestyle? I mm. lived for it. I was working for my father. I left school early. I was working for Dad in the gym in Hindley Street, um, and uh, it was perfect. I mean, you know, he was a pretty good boss, but he was, you know, pretty easy. If I needed to come in a bit later or leave early or whatever it might be, um, and uh, you know, it was a, it was a pretty rough street in those days. Very rough, in mm. fact. So again, I was mixing with a lot of people who were involved in all those sorts of things. A lot of my, a lot of my, I started working for bookmakers. Started calling races, so my whole life sort of revolved around. It was a lifestyle, Sam. It's a good way to explain. It was a lifestyle, and I absolutely lived for it for a while. I lived for it, and then, of course, once everything became addictive, and 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 uh, and I needed it rather than wanted it, um, then obviously things started to fall apart. But just very gradually yep. and in different ways. We know the dangers. Of alcohol, we know the dangers of cocaine and and marijuana. Yeah. What's the dangers associated with gambling? We know that that's mm. pretty prevalent at the moment in society. How much do you think that you've probably gambled away? Well, I reckon I've probably gambled away a million dollars. Wow! Wow! Honestly, I really do. With compound interest and and what I could have done with the money, um, and I know when I say that, I really don't believe it. I really can't believe it, but. You know, with the loans I took out um, in the early days, because I lost all the time. I, I wasn't a good punter. I, I, I've, no one is. <laughs> well, well, some are, but only a very small percentage. But on a, and, and look, I wasn't a big punter. I wasn't having five hundred five hundred dollars or a thousand on things. But I mean, I mean, in the first eight years of my life, first six years of my life, I was on the doll, and I don't know what the doll was. But I'd lose that every every week. So there's six years of the doll for a start. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I started getting loans, started borrowing money, etc., uh, etc. Et Look, the question you asked, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, apart from what you lose financially, it obviously internalises you, it makes you very depressed. Uh, it gives you an incredible endorphin hit when you have a bet, mm-hmm. and it gives you an incredible endorphin hit when you win, and it gives you an incredible endorphin hit when you lose. It's very hard to explain. But what what I would say is that this is a side issue, but... One of the big problems that my father, because he was a gambler, one of the big issues that he had that I noticed, and of course it happened with me as well, was he'd go to the races, he was a gambler. Like me, he wasn't a big gambler, and he was a better gambler than I was. But he'd go to the races on a Saturday. Now, if he won, when because we were only renting, we didn't have much money, we were living in Fullerton. When he won, when he got home, we'd hear the front door open, because my dad, uh, my brother and my sister and me and, and uh, my mum, who was very unwell, she had mental health issues, we were all sitting in the lounge. If he walked into the lounge with a, a huge bag, um, uh, bag of Kentucky Fried Chicken, we knew he'd won. But more importantly, we knew he'd be in a good mood. If he walked in with nothing, we knew that he was going to cook tea and we knew that it was probably going to be a tough night. Because, you see, it doesn't matter how strong the mask is. If you go to the races and, and knock off a couple of hundred dollars, you can't tell me that you're going to come home and go, hey, everything's okay now, mm. babe. It doesn't work that way. That's just one, apart from losing money... That's just another little issue that occurs in, in a family uh, or with your friends when you're gambling. And, you know, most family. I mean, when the husband comes home from work or from playing sport or whatever it is on a Saturday, the last thing the wife wants is every single Saturday for the husband to be in a bad mood and for everyone to be walking on, uh, treading on, um, on eggshells. And that happened to my mum and it happened to us for a long, long time. And, of course, I experienced that too. You know, I went through that. Um, if I'd go down to the pub 
and particularly recently, last four years or so, and I had money on the credit card and I knocked off $500 and I was half pissed, I was going to come home in a cow mood. And it's just not fair. It was not fair for my wife. So that's another side issue. But there are many effects, many effects of gambling. What made you get into the media but back, way back uh, when your career started? Well, I, I, because I was involved in racing, uh, I got to know Bruce McAvaney and Ray Fewings and Ron Papps. And, uh, and because I like racing, I, I started doing um, phantom calls mm-hmm. of races. And as a result of that, and Bruce used to come into Dad's gym occasionally, uh, but Ron Papp certainly came in, Ray didn't. And uh, so I got to know these guys. And uh, one day, Bruce said to me, uh, oh, and, and then in the interim, I started at, at 18, I started working for bookmakers. So I was right involved in the races. It was mm-hmm. unbelievable. And uh, Bruce said to me, look, would you like to call some trials out at Day's Road? And so they don't go to air. They're not. Uh, they're not true. Ra- they're races, but they're not broadcast. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I did that. I went out and I did some some trials, and I did that for about three months. And then Bruce said, "Look, you know, you think you're getting closer to being okay to call a race." Mm-hmm. So I started working for Five DN in those days, and just helping out and giving the prices on air and stuff. I wasn't calling races or anything. So I was working with Bruce and Ray Fewings. Um, and uh, anyway, I got an opportunity to to do uh, to do a race out at Kadena, and I did it okay. I started working for DN for you got to remember, I was still using now. Mm. I was still using, so I, I I commentated for twelve months. At the end of the twelve months, I wasn't doing as well as I could have. I was making mistakes. So Gary Bow, who was then the program director, rang me and said, "Mark, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to terminate you 12 months." Okay, yep. that was '83. I then went up to Darwin for two years mm. with with my dear friend Brad, who I mentioned to you at the start, um, and uh, was up there for two years. Called the races up there, called the greyhounds at Winelli Park, worked at the casino, did a whole range of things, um, and then a job came up at the ABC when Malcolm McDonald, and you guys wouldn't know Malcolm, but Malcolm McDonald was the sports editor at the ABC in Adelaide in radio, and he commentated. He was a commentator as well. Um, he, there was an ad in the paper, and Mum, bless her heart, rang and said, there's an, ad, advertise, there's an ad in the Australian for a radio sports journalist. She said, why don't you go for it? So I went for it. God knows how. God knows how I put my stuff together. <laughs> I really don't know. I must have been straight at the time. Uh, and uh, Malcolm got me down interviewed me and I got the job. Wow. So I was there from 84 through until 96 and then from 96 I went from there to Channel 10 and of course in between I did radio because initially it was radio and then I slipped into TV at the ABC. How did that happen? Mm. Well, it was interesting and actually, you know, uh, radio and TV were two separate entities. So I think they're together now from memory or maybe they... ABC, they've, yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah they ABC, are, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they've sort of ABC, gone... Yeah. Anyway... Um, so I was working for Malcolm, Malcolm McDonald and I was calling the footy um, and doing a few other broadcasts and I was doing a six o'clock sports update, which I pre-recorded. Um, and back in those days, I was interviewing um, Dennis Cometti, who was over in Perth and talking about the local waffle over there. That's, right. that's how long we're going back. <laughs> He's gone back there now. He yeah. has, <laughs> he has, yeah. So, so anyway, so uh, I was doing that. And then TV News was a separate, a separate area on a separate floor. And Grant Heading, who's a dear friend of mine now, was my news director uh, at Channel 10. But he was working at the ABC. He was the chief of staff. And he asked me, he said, look, he said, we're looking at doing a sports segment. Because in those days, they weren't doing sports segments, would you mm. believe? I mean, they didn't even really know how to do a 
footy highlights package yeah. or a yeah. cricket highlights package. It was really unusual. So Grant said, we're looking for someone to present the sport. Would you like to just have a go? So I had a go and, you know, and that's how it started. And that lasted how many years? Well, that was from, as I say, that was from 84 to 96. And in fact, in fact, in the next couple of weeks, I'm actually catching up with the first person I actually worked with who was reading news. His name's John Ovenen. He's an English guy. And um, I'm actually catching up with him for, for, for lunch. But over that period, I reckon I worked with so many different people, including Jane Doyle. Uh, she was there for 12 months mm. um, and and so many others. But I, I yeah, I, so I did sport all the way through uh, and I produced sport as well and I reported. A um, bit different these days where yeah. you do have a, you know, a, an actual desi- designated mm. producer and sometimes a designated host and, of course, reporters. But, no, I worked my, I worked my backside off and, you know, it was – and in those days, of course, we could break stories yeah. in, the local, in the local competition, yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, some of your highlights, you've done uh, the Sydney to Hobart, AFL, obviously, Melbourne Cup, Bathurst, yep. MotoGP, IndyCar, Australian Grand Prix, yes. Adelaide 500, yeah. women's netball. Yeah, wow. What's the highlight? Well, I, I called the women's netball final in 2000. Mm-hmm. I think it was 2000 over in New Zealand when we came from five goals down and won. So, I mean, that was really exciting. But because racing's my love, I was fortunate enough to to work in the mounting yard at the Melbourne Cup for 10 years and I worked with uh, Sandra Sully and and Pete Donegan um, and uh, and so many so many others who Roy Higgins Mm -hmm. uh, Johnny Letts of course Um, so I'd say probably the Melbourne Cup because I was given a bit of I was given a, a bit of free reign there as well I was doing the interviews with the jockeys before and after the races in the mounting yard but I also worked for Sports Tonight and I did some comedy with John Letts and I look back at some of them the I, other day. I think I've seen one where you're interviewing him, and it's all different positions when they come back. Yeah, to you. <laughs> yeah. It, my humour is pretty weird, but John was great, you know, because he he so, he, so, he was so straight. He was a great straight man. But we enjoyed doing that as well, and uh, and I did that for I did comedy for all of those others that you mentioned, including the um, including the uh, the Olympics in two thousand. But I'd say the Melbourne Cups. Is there a favourite one? Is there a favourite winner of yours that? That's a good question. Probably might and power. Right. Yeah, probably might and power. It's 97, I think. Yeah. And, and look, the reason that that was really important was because, um, my memory's poor, but the gentleman that owned it, um, uh, Nick, uh, I can't remember his name now, but he was, he'd just lost his wife and I interviewed him after... I mean, obviously, once I'd done my job on the broadcast, I then worked until 11 o'clock that night doing stuff for Sports Tonight. So we always went to wherever they were celebrating. And he on, he did an interview with me outside of um, outside of a hotel uh, that night, and uh, he cried. Uh, he was he was just so upset, um, and he sort of dedicated it to his to his wife. Um, so probably that. Um, I mean, they're all good. They're all really good. And they're so you know it's, it's a long time ago. We we look back at obviously the great days of you in television and in radio, and you, you was there a point where you felt like you'd really hit the top of your game? Um, well, look, the short answer to that, as I answer that question now, is no, because I haven't, and I know I haven't, and I know why I haven't, and that is because of because of my using. But maybe to other people. Um, they might have felt, look, I can't give you a date or a year, to be honest, but I think probably the last two or three years at Channel 10, even though that's when I was at my most unwell, 
I probably really, I felt as though I did well because Rebecca Morse was such a wonderful co-host, um, co-host for heaven's sake, she, she, she was reading the news of course, but she was, she was such a great foil for me because um, she was very funny and very clever and very witty um, and therefore I could have some fun and she'd have fun back. And I did enjoy doing that, I must admit. And I was reading well, you know, I was re- I was reading. I mean, what, you know, if I was giving advice to anyone who's reading sport news or weather or whatever you're doing, try and do it as naturally as you can. Uh, I mean, try not to be anyone else but who you are. And, and, and I think that's what came across. And I guess that's why I feel as though maybe those two or three years were good. And at the end of sport, I used to love having a joke with... Uh, with with Beck, you know, and she was so clever. So it wasn't as if I was having a joke and putting her down and then she had nothing to say. Mm. She'd always have something to say or do. So I probably the last three years just prior to um, prior to me leaving Channel 10, I would say. There was one joke that went viral Absolutely. on the internet and it was about uh, the urn for the ashes. Yeah. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about that one. Well, okay, so, so, so <laughs> this is how it works, right? So uh, we, we, had a, about, we had about 15, 20 seconds where we had to ad lib at the end of my last story, and my last story was all about uh, the Ashes urn, and uh, there was a, it was just a basic story about, um, I think it was the England captain was holding it and mm. sort of saying that we're coming to coming to Australia to, to you know, to beat you and that, and and we had to think really quickly, and that was actually with uh, with uh, Belinda Hagen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we both got the message via the producers who were over in Melbourne, incidentally. Oh, can you just add it? So, I mean, we, we had no time to think. So right at the end, I just simply said something like, you know, uh, Belinda, I just can't understand how something so small can be so impressive. <laughs> now, that in itself was reasonably funny. Yes. But then she said in an aggressive tone. Oh. <laughs> right? You've not gone defensive not, here. Not a la- no, 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 no. I'm just a, I mean, if she had a – so in an aggressive tone, she said, well, you'd know all about that, Mark. <laughs> now, if she had have gone, oh, well, you'd know all about that, Mark yeah. – no one would have thought anything. <laughs> Three days later, it had eight million hits. <laughs> it was on Ellen De- DeGeneres it over in the not. US. It was on Ellen DeGeneres. Oh. And, and she, but there were people making comments saying, oh, that poor guy, he was completely taken aback by that and they must be having an affair. He's sounds as though he's got a small willy, but it sounds as though it's impressive. You know, I mean, people didn't know what to make out of it. And I'll never forget getting off set after we'd finished our sport and, of course, Rebecca was... a. Uh, uh, Belinda was still uh, working. She had still to throw to the weather after that. And she looked at me. She said, Mark, do you, do you think anyone will pick up on that? And I said, no, I don't no. think so. <laughs> and then I went over and had a look at it and I thought, no, this is going to be interesting. Sure enough, I get a text message the next morning from someone. I think it was from Beck, actually. And she said, you know, you've gone viral. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I've gone viral because people think I've got a small penis. <laughs> well, really, you know, I mean, honestly. So that was, yeah, that was a bit of an experience. Mark, I must say, uh, the first time I met you, it was funny. It was at the same time as you and Belinda were reading news oh, at yeah. the time. And yeah. so I did work experience. I was year 10. Oh, for um, And you were one of the first people to come up and approach me and just get to know who I was and I felt like you were such a warm person such a wonderful person to have as someone who I'd watch on television each day to read the sport and you were you were no different to who you were on TV and as you said a piece of advice to any news reader out there read it as naturally as you can you were very natural and you were happy to have a laugh off air and just be who you were and I love that about the fact that I could be approachable and relate and and relate with someone who's on TV each and every day did you have was there a point in your life, even when you were reading news each and every day, and people might approach you in the streets? Yeah. 
Did you ever get to a point where you thought you were any bigger than you were? Oh, look, honestly, um, I mean, the short answer is absolutely no. And 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 just to pick up on your initial point, you know, my advice to look, I'll go back a step. I think, and this is going to sound controversial, but just because someone's on TV, I, I, I feel uncomfortable that we're called personalities, you know, or that we're called celebrities. I mean, really? I mean, honestly, I, I really feel that. And look, that's not to say that if Channel 10, Channel 9, Channel 7 or whoever it was said, hey, Mark, we'd like to give you your own show or would you fill in for Will on – or whatever it might mm. be. you know, That's not to say that I wouldn't consider that. But, but one thing's for sure, I never, ever saw myself as anything more than me uh, as I had been when I was young and as I was – so, you know, for me to go up and talk to you, Sam, and thank you for saying that – but there's nothing unusual. For, I mean, that's just normal. Yeah. You know, it's just normal. I mean, I, I, I'd i be embarrassed if people – I know people look up to me or looked up to me, and I know people when they see me in the street even now, and particularly since I've been doing these videos, oh, Mark, you know, and look, I'm humble, and, and, I, and I please, I, I mean it sincerely. You know, I'm humble because I genuinely am humble. You know, I really, really am, and I'm embarrassed when someone says uh, – oh, look, I had an incident at a, at a restaurant just recently – and I won't mention the restaurant, but if, if, if the people at the restaurant are listening, they'll know where it was. And one of the waiters came over and in front of everyone when I was about to pay, he said, you know who this is, don't you? This is Mark Aston from Channel 10. Honestly, I felt that small. It really, really was horrible. I really, really felt horrible. Well, yeah, yeah, because standing alongside of me might have been, you know, Dr. Srinath, mm. who's saving someone's life. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, but... I can't blame the guy. It's just how it is, and I, but I'm embarrassed about it. Um, and I want to, you know, and I'm not involved in the in the t- in TV media anymore. But I'd never change that. One of the things my father always said to me though was, he said, if someone wants to come up to you and have a chat, he said always do that. And I always did. Mm. I mean, why wouldn't I? Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, why wouldn't I? And he said, try not to show that you're embarrassed because they may think that that is you being aloof. Do you understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, there's a fine balance between sort of feeling uncomfortable that someone is looking up to you when, of course, at the time, you've got to understand that I was looking down on myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, you know, I, I never I, I never felt that I'd made it or that I was mm. anything more than just who I was. A lot of that was because of what I was going through and because I was an addict. But a lot of it was because that's genuinely how I am. So I guess my advice to anyone who's in TV is, you know, treat people legitimately as just equals, don't don't think you're any better than them. You know, we're not saving lives. Mm-hmm. We're not saving lives. No. Um, you know, my wife, my former wife, was working with doctors and nur- nurses, earning thirty dollars a bloody hour. Mm. You know, and they're looking after. They looked after my father until the day he died. They're the people we should really be looking up to. Oh, that's how I genuinely feel. Now, uh, it, most uh, illustrious career, and he's touched on it before, that uh, no one would have known any of the addictions and that. So how did you actually cope? And is it like living two lives yeah, as such? Yeah, it is, mate. That's exactly what it's like. And, and, and when you're working in the media, you, um, you, know, you, you wear a mask. So, you know, you're feeling like this during the day and then you go on air and then you've got you've to put on a persona. Now, the, the issue that you have when you're working in a public role is that you've got you to bolt the mask on really tight, really tight, because you can't at any stage in that seven or eight minutes you're on air or when I was doing radio, mm. 
uh, for three hours. I mean, there were times there where I was suicidal, you know, uh, doing the breakfast show. Um, and, of course, you know, addicts are also uh, people who um, will uh, react to someone in a really bad way. You don't just go, okay, no worries, that person said that, but I'm going to be okay. So when you're really down and out and someone even says something in a slightly aggressive tone, you know, that hurts, that mm. really hurts. So you had to, I had to be really careful of that. But um, I just had to make sure that that mask was bolted on. I, you know, I looked like Herman Munster. I had the two bolts down there and the two bolts up here, and it couldn't come off. Mm. And when you do that for 36, 37 years, it's a bit like... It's a bit like in the end, it's a bit like walking around with a rucksack full of stones or it's a bit like towing a bus. In other words, it's hard effing work. You know, it's hard work because you're exhausted. You're mentally exhausted. And that, of course, leads to other things and then you get depressed and then you start using, etc., etc., etc. I mean, it sounds all dramatic, but that's how often these sorts of things work. So I guess I had to make sure that, I was at my best generally twice a day in the morning and at night and for someone who was so ill particularly in the end it just be, well it became it became too much. Was there a moment in your life when you were in the grip of the addiction and your mental health battle that there was a moment that you said hang on a second I I need help I need to go and it might have been telling opening up to your family about what was going on opening up to your friends was there a second when you said, I, I need to do this? Well, I mean, all the way through, my family knew what was going on. Mum was mum was a major sufferer of mental health, and she was in and out of Glenside. You guys probably wouldn't know Glenside, but um, but Glenside was, well, you, you know, it's still largely a mental institution, um, but it's also um, housing development now because I've sold a lot of stuff off. But it was very renowned in the 70s. So, so there's history, and there's history of alcoholism with my father's father. There's history of drinking with my father's history of gambling. Um, so that that just sort of paints that picture, but in answering your question, um, I, I I mean I I I sought help a number of times um, by going to the doctor many years ago and getting antidepressants uh, by talking to Brad, my best mate. Um, my wife knew for most of our life, but she didn't really know what to do. Um, then I went and saw a psychologist. Then I went and saw a psychiatrist. Um, but none of those things at that time really worked. I mean, the antidepressants helped, and I'm still on antidepressants, but they didn't help me to the point that I got to three months ago. Um, and and I guess one of the things that, one of the, t- not so much tools, but one of the things that occurred when it finally came to a, an absolute head and I went to Melbourne is that the people that I was communicating with in Melbourne, in other words, the practitioners, the people who were teaching and who were helping, they're all addicts. Um, you know, they're not psychiatrists and psychologists who, who have never touched a drug or never gambled or, or, or never had a drink. These people are, uh, were addicts. They were heavy addicts mm. for 10, 20, 30 years. And then, of course, what they do is they do study. And, and so they understand you. Um, and and that was very important to me over there. But, but no, I don't, I don't think – look, there was – yeah, in, in just in, in conclusion with that question, there was a number of times I sought help, but it never really worked until the end. And I didn't really even uh, sought help there. It was my sister coming to me. How hard was it to keep the secret, to, to roll into whatever profession you were doing at the time? You mentioned it goes a long way back into your radio career. Yeah. How hard was it to put the mask on? And Oh, mate, you get used to it. Oh, you're very good at doing it. Yeah, right. Oh, mate, you're very good at doing it. I mean, I could have done this interview two days before I went to Melbourne. You know, if I if I, mm. if I 
so desired, and I'd be in exactly the same. That's the, yeah, that's the. I mean, it, yeah. How, that, long, how long did it take? Because clearly, you said there's a time where you get good at it, and then it just stays that way because that's how much practice you'd had. How much practice did it take you? I suppose with putting that mask on from the point where you realised there was something wrong and you needed to do that well, to the point where you got good? Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, I, I, you get good in the, in the very early stages because it's not that difficult to put on a smile and it's not that, it's not that difficult to, to converse with people and go out. Um, that's, not, that's not difficult. Um, but what is difficult, as I alluded to earlier, is, uh, is, is, is not reacting and when I was working uh, on um, when I was working on mix, and I was working with Jody, Oddie, and Snowy Carter, uh, that was a very dark time for me as well. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, I think they picked up on it because I was in shocking moods in the morning. I mean, on air you'd never have known. I was in a shocking mood. Jody might say something to me that upsets me, and and I'd snap back at her. You know, that's not normal. Mm. That's not normal. Okay, it's early in the morning. I understand that, but it's not normal. Snowy might have said something to me and I'd snap back or I'd just be in a bad mood and they'd know. So I guess sometimes that mask slips off a bit. But then, of course, when we were on air, it was all fine. It was all, it was all brilliant. But um, you get good at it at a very early age. And, but interestingly, though, Sam, you can also tell you get to know the, the traits of others who are putting it on as well. Yes. You, you get to pick up yeah. on that as well. Regrets. Do you have any? Oh... Well, God. Well, yeah. I, look, I do. I do. But I'll just preface my answer by saying they're done. Yeah. They're gone. Mm-hmm. You know, there is nothing I can do about them. There's nothing I can do about them, about mm-hmm. those regrets and those issues. What I can do is I can – sounds like a politician now, but I don't mean to. But what I can do is I can change what happens going forward. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're looking for an answer, and I guess I'd certainly say – the way that I carried on during my marriage uh, with my wife, um, um, you know, which which was obviously horrible for her after a while. Um, not, you know, not being present with my daughter. I mean, I get on beautifully with Bridget. We, we love each other dearly. And I get on well with Judith too. But not being present with my daughter. Uh, I mean, I was, I was an okay... I'm not going to put myself down completely. I was an okay father. You know, I earned a lot of money. Uh, I was physically there, um, but I could have been so much better. Um, I guess, um, you know, I guess from a selfish point of view, losing my job at Channel 10, although I was thinking about that the other day, you know, in a way that was a blessing because if I hadn't have, and I know this is really unusual logic, but if I hadn't have lost my job then, I could have been there for another 12 months. I'm sure it would have eventually happened. Then another 12 months on, I would have lost my job at Nova. Then Judith probably would have left me. The point I'm making is I wouldn't even be in recovery now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So in a way, it was a blessing that because it, it was always going to happen where I was at. Um, so I, I, I regret that. But as I say, that, that, was, that was a blessing in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I guess just... No, I think, they're, I think they're the three. I mean, there's a million little things in our lives that you can always do better. Of course. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things I did that I really regret when I was intoxicated. But you know, drinking and driving and stuff like that. I mean, of course I regret all those things. But um, you know, they, uh, you know, they're things that I can't change, and they're things that I'll never do again. It's so um, 
interesting your story. What's some of the good days that you remember that you, you know throughout your media career that really stand out? I know yeah. we talked about sporting highlights, but what are some mm. of the other uh, good times that stood out? Well, look, I, I can tell you a couple of stories. The, um, these were um, I, I can remember um, someone ringing me in I think it was eighty seven or eighty eight. And uh, they said, you know, John McEnroe's uh, practicing down at uh, the uh, Memorial Drive Nets with Darren Cale. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, oh, okay. Now, the year before, he'd um, forfeited at the Australian Open. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time he was back in Australia where he was going to be asked questions. Yeah. So I thought, wow, what a great story. I was working at the ABC, but I was so nervous and so introverted. <laughs> Anyway, so I went down there, and sure enough, there he is. And I think, oh, my God, and I can't remember the camera. But anyway, I was like, come over, come over. So we sat, we got some shots. And uh, anyway, so Darren finished playing with him, and then another guy started playing. And Darren walked over. I knew Darren well, Darren Kale. And I said, what do you think? He said, you want to interview him, don't you? And I said, well, it would be really good. And he said, well, he said, just see, see what he says. Just ask him, you know. He said he'll be practising for another 10 minutes. Once he's finished, just approach him, tell him who you are, blah, blah. So anyway, um, so I waited and waited, and he finally finished. And I was so nervous, and I went over. I said, "Oh, h- h- hello, hello, Mr. McEnroe," I called him. <laughs> so that would have put him off straight away. I said, "It's Mark Aston from the ABC." He said, "G'day," or whatever he said. Wouldn't have said "g'day." <laughs> That's what I would have said to him. And uh, and I said, "John, I'm just wondering if I could have a quick word." I said, "I, I, I was apologetic, which you should never be." Because um, it devalues you, but I, I said, uh, you know, I, I understand that I haven't really rung and checked out and all that with anyone. But I said, I'm just down here, and he said, "What do you want to talk about?" And I said, um, "Well, you know, it's sort of the first time you've been back in Australia since you know getting booted out of the Australian Open last year." And he said, oh, yeah, right, I thought so. He said, you don't want to talk about my form now? And I said, well, we could throw those questions in. I'm just not sure we'd use them in the story, you know, and you'd appreciate that. Anyway, and uh, he said, all right, no worries. So I was so excited. So I asked him three or four questions, and it was great. And I got a really good national story with the only ones that spoke to him. And he shook my hand afterwards. And I said, thanks, John. I, we didn't have iPhones in those days, so I couldn't get a, a selfie with him or anything. And I was really proud of myself. And a similar story, and I, look, I, that was a happy story, but I, I guess one of the other highlights in a way, although it was sad in, in some ways, was I went Robert Shaw when he was coaching the Crows and he'd, his family had been egged, uh, his house had been egged, yep. and I think he'd already told the board that he was – I think the board had already told him that he wasn't going on. Mm. And I think it was about maybe five rounds to go or something. Anyway, so he was sort of a lame duck coach anyway. But um, my boss said, mate, you need to go down and interview him. I said, well, he's, he's not up today. You know, like there's no schedule. He said, mate, you just need to go down, uh, uh, go down at your doorstop, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I'll never forget it. I went down to uh, Amy Stadium. Um, they were, Everyone was just walking off. And there was hardly anyone left. It was a cold, wet night, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was picking up the balls in those big bags. And he's he's about to walk up the uh, walk up the uh, the race. Mm-hmm. And he looked over and I said, uh, I said, um, oh, hi, Shorey, how are you going? He said, g'day. He never called me by my name. He said, g'day. And I said, um, mate, can we just have a quick word? And as he walked up the, uh, the race, he said, no way. And he just kept walking. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm thinking, oh. I said, Robert, maybe, look, just one or two que- questions. That, that, that's all. And so he stopped and came back 
to me. I was on the other side of the uh, – sorry, I'm off mic there. I was on the other side of the, the railing. And he walked over and he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, Robert, obviously, you know, the egging and, and, and how your children were being treated at school. He said, I don't want to talk about that. He said, he said we're playing Collingwood. He said, you asked me questions about Collingwood. And I've gone – and I'm with the cameraman and we're looking. And I'm going, oh, God. And I, anyway, so he started walking up. He turned around and he came down and he said, one question. You can ask me one question. Robert, thank you. So we, he, and, and then he, he changed. He said, follow me. He said, I'll show you where we can do the interview. And he got quite excited about it. <laughs> I swear to God, it was weird. <laughs> so we went into the old Crows area yeah. where they had the canteen. Mm. And because no one else was around. So we set up, stands in front, and I, he just went on. I couldn't stop him. <laughs> he was crying. Oh, he was wow. upset. Unbelievable. And we did a two-part piece on it. And at the end of it, I'm thinking, oh, thanks, Robert. He said, no worries. And, and like, like from going no, no way. to one question to let's write a book about this. Yeah. So as as you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, coming back to your newsroom and your, your producer saying how did you go and you go great and then he says tears and I go yes he goes fantastic you know but um, so it was one question what was the question well, 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 it was a really long question no I think from memory it was just hey mate how do you feel about your house being egged and he started on that and then he started without me even asking him about his kids and he started crying wow. and you know he told me how much he loved the club even though he'd been here for 12 months and oh it was incredible yeah so I mean you know, that's a bit of a negative story, which I don't really like highlighting, but I guess it, it just goes to show you that, you know, that's in a lot of ways, that's what our news producers want. They want something that's exclusive and they want something emotive mm-hmm. um, and they want something negative, which I don't really like anymore, but, you know, that was part of the job. Mark, you're we're getting to the back end of the, the chat here and that's, you know, we have done brilliantly well to, to give us some of the, the insight that you've given us and I suppose now we can look at, now, today, yeah. and you still seem to have a, a big love for media, even though everything you've gone through um, and how much you've had to deal with in this industry, mm. you still seem to have a good love for the media industry. You have your business, Media Insider, yeah. and you, yeah. you work passionately with that. You've got a podcast as well, which you work with you know, on and off, and, and we yeah. love that in terms of mental health, the yeah. mental health show. Yes. Um, why do you well I suppose how do you maintain such a passionate love for something even though you've had so many highs and lows yeah it was a good question look I'd I'd preface all of those remarks by simply saying that I still don't agree with a lot of the stories that the media do um, whether it be um, you know the newspapers whether it be TV news or radio news I I still feel that you know stories are sensationalized and I still feel that we um, invade people's privacy far too much um, and I think you know, uh, I, I and I and I also feel that particularly TV news, I think they spend too much time doing car accident stories. Look, I, I understand that some of them have a genuine story. Well, I suppose to be fair, all of them have a genuine story. That I understand that because it's someone's life that was lost. Yeah. But but I just don't. I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand what what a viewer would get out of, let's say, the first break on one of the TV stations of being three or four stories about death and destruction. Mm. Honestly, and this is a conversation for another time, but I really feel as though the news services and um, mainly TV, uh, radio to a less extent and and, uh, newspapers to a lesser extent, again, I do believe that they have a responsibility for everyone's mental health. And I think a lot of stories they do 
generates fear within the society, mm. the way they do the stories. Yeah, of course. And, um, and, and, and I think we need to look at that, and, and I, I feel that that's an area that I don't like. I really don't. And Clearly I, you're passionate about this. Well, I am passionate about that. I, I'm very passionate about that. And I, I, I can I, – look, I'll, I'll never forget uh, – I'll never forget the day that, um, that, that we ran four or five stories in that first break and the first one was a car accident where we'd spoken to the mother about the daughter getting killed. The second one was a bus crashing over in New South Wales. Mm. Third one was a bridge collapse and the fourth one was something – it was horror. Mm. And I'll never forget my news director from his news uh, news uh, director's office when we threw to a break, putting his hands together and clapping and saying, "Well done, guys! Great effort!" And that struck me. That struck a chord for me. I mean, mm. yes, technically it was a great effort. You know, good interviews, well edited, well read by the newsreader, no mistakes. But that's where it ended for me, mm. because. If I was at home looking at those four stories, I'm not going to get up and get myself a cup of coffee and a cup of coffee and go, "Wow, everything's fine in the world." Now I know that's getting a bit too close to it. I understand that, but I still feel as though the the, the media has an obligation to, in some way, help people and help society and help our and you know and help our uh, you know help us as 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 Adelaideans or South Australians or Australians or whatever it is help us. Believe and be stronger, and 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 be passionate, and and help us with our mental wellness. And I, I think I, I I just don't think that that's being considered at the moment. Um, but in answering your, I just went off on a rave then. But in, <laughs> but in answering your yes. question, I do have I do have a, a passion for the media. I have a passion for mental health. I have a passion for addiction. Um, as long as it's me with the, that doesn't have the addiction, um, and others really. Um, and I, I have a passion for helping people uh, be better performers in front of the media, and uh, and I'm an observer of the media. So maybe f- you know, I'm doing that for so long. I mm. guess that's something that is in my blood. Mm. We've talked about your addictions. We've talked about your media career. We've talked about you overcoming. We're getting through rehab. God, what, where, where are we going now? What's next? Oh, for Mark I, thought you, I, thought, I thought you had a surprise for me. What about this jail term? You know, I mean, honestly, what was it like in there? What next? Well, uh, I'm still working on my on my uh, my recovery, which means that I do meditation in the morning. I walk my dog in the morning. I uh, go to the gym. I don't go up into the gym at this stage. I'm just going to the sauna and having a swim. Mm-hmm. So I do, uh, I do that. I then go to an AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, or an NA meeting. Uh, I do, do about eight of those a week, uh, where I share my story. But wow. everyone else does too. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, yep, yep. it's not about me here. It's about, about everyone. Um, and uh, I keep uh, a, a detailed uh, diary, um, and I have a sponsor, uh, where you know that's someone who's been clean for over ten years. So, so if you feel as though you need to use, or if you've had a bad day, or yep. if you had a good day, you still ring them. So I'm doing all of those things, but I do have a lot of things I want to do, and I want to continue on with the mental health podcast. I want to continue on with my media training, and I also I'm just setting up a TV studio at home. Oh wow! I want to do, um, uh, you know, well, basic studio. Yeah. It's got a green screen, right. camera, lighting, and all that. And I want to do uh, a series of videos in a different environment rather than the ones I've been doing in the mm-hmm. car with my my dog, sure. I, because sure. I do them with um, with Jack in the back. Um, and uh, so, oh, look, I've got I've got a range of things uh, that I that I'm keen to do, but 
I have to look after myself first because yep. if I don't, yep. I'm not going to be able to do any of those well. Sure. There's obviously thousands of people out there in Australia struggling with the same addictions and grips that you've had yep. throughout your life. We've seen that you've started posting your journey yeah. on social media. Are you now hoping to influence or have some sort of a guidance for those that are doing it tough, that are struggling with mental illness and addiction? Yeah, I am. Um, but I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just someone who's simply had an addiction and been unwell for much of their life and still and still uh, achieved. Uh, so I've been a, a functioning uh, addict. What I'd like to achieve is um, uh, some, um, I guess, awareness of just how dark it can be and and how quickly it can, even though it was 46 years, it did happen quickly in the last three or four years, and how quickly things can deteriorate, and the signs to look for, and the sorts of things to do afterwards if you do seek recovery. Um, so I guess my message to everyone is if you feel as though you are heading in a direction, and I didn't because uh, you know it took me 46 years, but if you do feel as though something's not quite right, just talk to someone. It's a very simple message, but just talk to someone, whether it's your brother, your sister, your friend, your school teacher, just talk to someone, talk it through, go and see your doctor, um, and depending on how significant it is, um, then take some action. But don't leave it. You know, don't leave it. Don't let it fester. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, as I say when I do public speaking, I, I never stand on a soapbox and say, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't take drugs. You shouldn't gamble. I don't say that. All I say is, this is what I did. And this is where it got me. So that's fine. You do that. No problem. Mm. But but there's a very good chance that this is where it's going to end up for you. And I can promise you guys, it's not a great place. Um, you know, I'm very, very lucky to still be alive. In fact, if it wasn't for my sister and my best mate and probably prior to that, my dog, I probably wouldn't be here. Mark, you're an absolutely fantastic advocate for uh, trying to erase the stigma of mental health. And look, your heart is clearly in the right place. Your mind is adjusting itself and uh, doing so accordingly. We are really thankful for your time and your openness on our podcast today on the Press Box. Thank you for joining us and um, you know, good luck with the rest of the journey. Thank you, guys. All the best. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thank man. you. Thanks for listening to the Press Box. We'll be back for Season 2 in January 2020.